It is my custom, it is my tradition, it is my sacred privilege because I understand being a professor as not an inherent right. I understand being a proclaimer as the gospel as not something that was meant for me in a legacy and a context that demanded I either be invisible or quiet. So every time I mount the sacred desk, I consider it God's work. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be like the holy fire of God. Consume your mind and your hearts of wood. And with that, I would like to open us with a centering moment. Somehow we weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. There was always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. Oh, we've seen forces that would shatter our nation rather than share it. Would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy and this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. Amanda Gorman. Now this century moment is a response to the call of an America in crisis, what Maya Angelou would call these yet to be United States. And it rings kind of true, kind of heartening and familiar as Martin Luther King Jr., that great moral theologian, the civil rights movement, who said that the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends towards, I disagree. It's long, it's an arc, but morality does not follow evolution. That arc won't bend unless someone uses their moral muscle that ruah that was talked about last night that becomes flesh and dwells among us this is the context of our time together this week here we come here the world wonders queries questions perhaps doubts as we get moved from church to church and go home to our partner and says, honey, I shrunk the church. Because people believe in the morality, the claims and the promises of hate mongers, of gangs, of sex traffickers, of country clubs, sororities and fraternities. People believe the rules and dictates, the proclamations and claims of any other institutional organization than the church. I'm an ethicist. And people might believe in lay terms that ethics is about right and wrong. No, 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 no. People pretty much have casted their vote on that. But it is why do people do what they do? Why do people say things and do other things? Why do people proclaim things that they cannot promise? And this week, we're wondering as you refreshen your call, 
Will you say yes to telling the gospel truth? Because popular culture, political theology, and public witness is watching you. Now, when Dr. Gross introduced me last night and we were having such a wonderful time, and that's when you realize when you sit, when your executive assistants send bios, da da da, or what it means to be 50, you forget. I, I forgot. She was listing the degrees. My most recent degree is an MBA. Received an MBA uh, three years ago now, right before COVID. And it was because I realized that. The largest mismanagers of funds in the nation is a church. And not just mismanagement by pilfering from the coffers we, or stashing hundreds of thousand dollars in the restroom wall. I mean, not, not just for those reasons. But if you come from the context where my faith has been formed, it also comes from good community people going broke because they've gone into hock to keep the doors of the church open because they care more about stained glass than the windows of their own home or because people who have been called like me feel it's such a privilege that they invest all of their lack of salary into paying back the church for seeing them worthy of a call. Those within the black church tradition know that if, if only one person in the church is gonna get paid, oh, it's not the pastor, it's the musician because the spirit of the Lord is there in that Hammond organ, you see, not necessarily in the pulpit. And so in the school of business, and I had asked a colleague and I, um, who was in Owen School of Business said, you know, we should probably do something with financial literacy for the church because it's a problem when people come into the house of God with the CEO mentality and want to run it like a business, right? Because there's a difference between financial advising and stewardship. I have to tell our accountant that all the time when he looks at our portfolio every year and just says, you know what? You all could be just doing so much more if you stop giving 10% of what you make to that church and sending all of these people to school when you only have one child and all of these relatives. And I said, you, you don't know who made me. Those people are why I'm here. Now, I, I am coming to you because you know business, but let me handle what love looks like. But there is something that business teaches us, especially as those of us who are theologically educated. And Tillich says what? That religion is one's ultimate concern, not what people say, but where they put what they value, where they put their currency, right? And so we realize in civil religion that you can burn crosses all day long, but you better not burn the flag. Right. We know how civil religion supplants the religion that we claim. And there's some ways in which the pulpit has been seduced Similarly, business world has taught us in much the same ways that the dean of the school where we were at that time had said, there's no way in the world we're going to have a joint program, a class, classes, in, in other words, looking at financial literacy because there's just not enough FTEs. I mean, the, 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 the tuition that the divinity school gets as opposed to the tuition that the school of business, it just doesn't count for much. So I said, well, what shall I do, Lord? Th this is just ridiculous. You know, we need financial literacy, da, 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 da. You know, I'm doing all this ethicalness. This is just ridiculous. That's the problem with institutions. Nobody really cares, da, da, da. And I was giving a presentation 
at a local university. And after I got done, the dean of the business school came up at another institution and said, well, the president of the university at another institution said, uh, I didn't realize you have an MBA. And I said, well, you didn't realize it because I don't. And she said, my God, you should. And I said, yeah, well, I got a PhD, so no, I don't. And she said, well, we're opening classes next month. And then that darn scripture, here I am, Lord. And it was there in that moment that I realized that God calls us to do. We, we, we find Christ wherever the crisis is. Or as uh, the little kindergartners at my church would say, the, the one who smelt it, dealt it. Or when uh, Martin Luther King appropriated Halima Hoover's statement, uh, if you're not part of the problem, you're part of the solution. Well, in order to be part of the solution, you also have to be part of the problem. And so the first confession that we have to do is, is to realize that as the business world teaches us, there is a triple bottom line to our faith. In the business world, right, it's about people, planet, and profit. The social, right, the environmental, and the financial. And, and, and for us, the social is popular culture. The, the, the environmental is political theology, what people actually believe in, so much so that they will organize the polis. And, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about politics. Go back to philosophy. Go back to Socrates and Plato. Way back a when. When the polis, according to Plato, was based on three different spheres of where you had the philosopher kings and the warriors and the savages the privileged academics, those who, who pondered math, philosophy, and religion. Then the warriors, the muscle, to protect the polis, the people. And then the savages, most of us in the room. Women, people of color, those who did not inherit the philosopher kingdom, And the way in which that still is not just biblical antiquity that endures. We are made up of many parts. And so this week, we want to say, what does the cost, currency, and, and the current relevance of your call have to do with your public witness? That's the financial health. And at the middle, when all of these three spheres come into balance, that's when we know as the business world teaches us that what we're doing is sustainable. The church, Christianity, or your confession of faith is not sustainable if it cannot reckon itself with the current events currency and the cost of what it means, not just to be citizen, but what it means to be Christian. And if you are going to align yourself with the philosopher kings who ru rule over everyone else, or if you're just going to be the middle management muscle that's going to put your life on the line, or if you're going to be the people that people might call, might deem set. But if you look at the church, where the church is not shrinking, it's where the supposed savages are not afraid to tell the gospel truth. Now, quickly, <laughs> I want to give you three years of uh, MDiv education. <laughs> in what metaethics is. And metaethics, as I told you, ethics is why do people do what they do? The way in which we're approaching this this week from history to the field of ethics. Ethics, metaethics has to deal with the, the, the def, defining why people do what they do in, in concepts 
of the good, of the just. Realizing that people use the same words, but they don't necessarily mean the same thing. We realized that during COVID, yes? When New York Times said that the millennials said, work is not a place where you go. Work is something that you do. Okay, I'm Generation X. So Generation X and everybody before us, work is where you go. And then you do work once you get there. For the millennial generation on down, no, no, no. It matters not where you are. You just work the work of the one who's paying you while you're getting paid. <laughs> Right. So and we realized that during COVID that we had to change our notions of work. That's why it's important for us to have that accountability. How do we respond to other people? So when we talk about metaethics, that's what we're talking about. The meaning making of what matters and how it matters and why it matters. Always defining concepts in light of not what the claims are but how they manifest themselves and why it matters. So we understand philosophy then as the faithful search in understanding. That, that's why we come to these fine Ivy League institutions. So we, we, we can have that sequester time around like-minded individuals to break open every word we can get our hands on and rightly divide a word of truth. And despite what Foucault says, we understand that we are looking for our truth. And we realize in looking for our truth that there are, as he says, many truths. So the first thing that we ask, which is why many of you all might have went into apoplectic shock when you took Hebrew Bible 101. And you had read the Bible for yourself many times. And on the very first day, someone has the nerve to tell you. There are two creation stories. What? Open up the word. And you're like, yes. You know, I'm, by, I'm missionary Baptist, right? Presenting my sword. I'm ready. Sure enough, dag on it. Right there. Can't believe what my lying eyes, as Red Fox said, are telling me. Two creation stories. What? There goes our faith. No, then, you, then you're listening to all the church mothers who said, you know, you're going up to that cemetery. Make sure you don't lose what kept you. But we're shook. I mean, how many will tell the truth? Were you just not stunned? I mean, just, just ready just to fall out. Like, this is just ridiculous. And so we are asking the metaphysical question, what is real? That, that's where philosophy starts. What, what is real? This is what? What is this? Well, this, this might be harder, but, but what is this here? What is it? it looks like a table, right? How do we know it's a table? It participates in tableness, right? That's how we know. It's hard on the top, four legs. That's how we know. And how we use it tells us what? How we value it. Mm. Axiologically. Why do we value it? Well, why do we value a table? It lets us write on it. Right? It's hard, you know. And that creates form following fun, fun, functions following form, what? Informs our faith. We have faith in the fact that that's a table. And do you think we just do that with tables? Oh, no. Because it, 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 you're more accustomed to seeing my body serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. My body can be smiled at in those contexts. A farm that you know show enough you're going to eat some good food. It's the body that you want to see. But in front of a classroom, in front of a pulpit, 
in front of the classroom where you're supposed to teach me what to do in front of a pulpit? That's dissonance. Why? Because this form is not supposed to function that way. Philosophy. Hmm? Shapes our faith in the same way that there's something precious about that flag and not about that cross. Where we don't tell the flag how it should wave, it tells us how to sit in its breeze. And that takes us to the task of theology. Theology says, oh no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Faithful search of understanding. You all remember that Anselm Abelard debate, that this is kind of just reducing that quickly. We, we define theology as faith seeking understanding. So yeah, what is real? Okay, we understand that race is a social construct, that race isn't real. Oh, but ontologically speaking, questions about existence and being, you can say all day long, race isn't real. You can tell me all day long, as some of my most liberal, sweetest friends since, growing up in a predominantly white context in Corpus Christi, also known as the Body of Christ, Texas. That's what it means. Where the border moved over Mexico and became Texas, which is why that's the worst state in the United States of America to learn history. Because they demand that history is not taught. That's why I married a historian. Cliff notes, catch up. A context where we now live, right, in the United States of America, that just, right, validated, approved, and now we're celebrating as a holiday Juneteenth in the state of Texas, where it's outlawed to teach why Juneteenth exists. If race is a construct, racism is not. If somebody says, you know, I, I'm colorblind. When I, when I see you, I don't see black. Well, then you don't see very well. And by saying you don't see it, you're already what? Problematizing the fact that I am. So racism, that which is ontological, necessarily creates race. That is, so what is real on the one hand tells us something about what exists and is being on the other. That's why you need both philosophy and theology. Because someone can say a thing. When we're talking about sexuality, that's what's happening. You can say a thing about me, but this is my experience. This is my isness. Then epistemologically, how do we know? Phenomenologically. How does a black man know when he's driving down the street that it's dangerous to drive while black, regardless of what your education is, what your call is, whether you have a Bible on the front seat, and we know many of us trick out our cars, right? Especially people of color and women. Trick out our cars, and, you know, to signify, as Charles Long would say. Watch it. We're different. We're exceptional. Give us a pass whether we're speeding or whether you're about to profile. Malcolm X said a black person with a PhD is still a N-word. So phenomenologically, something happens. Women know walking by a construction site. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your station. In your body, phenomenologically, you feel terror. I have done more cases of being an expert witness in court where I have to, and I've never been chosen on a jury. As soon as you say that you're a black, you, as soon as they see you're a black woman, you know, that being a Navy brat, great. Being from Texas, fabulous. But you have a PhD and you teach ethics now, she's out. But, so I've never been on a jury ever in my life. But I've been an expert witness several times. And the greatest thing I have to be an expert witness about 
is to prove the point that consent for a woman does not mean consent. That's metaethics. So, so my, how you might understand the word doesn't mean doesn't necessarily mean that. And all I need to do is to talk to those women in the jury and talk about the construction site. And say, so now imagine somebody from that construction site who's catcalling you. And there are no words in any language, not just the English language, in every single language, some of the worst expletives are reduced to vagina and womb. There's nothing a woman can say back in defense of her body to a man who's assaulting her with the word. The worst thing you can call a man has to do with a woman. Can you believe that? And so when I tell them, when a predator has your body pinned down. Consent for most women is survival. That's metaethics. Because phenomenologically, if you don't, if you don't have, you know, a jujitsu, right, training, or a black belt, yes, is your best defense. And many of you who've been ordained. know about consent. Many of you across gender know about consent, saying to the adjudicatories what you do not believe. And then so we ask at what cost? Errol told us about axiological, how we value it. Yeah, how do we value it? On the theological side, we ask, is it good? Do you value what is good? Was it worth the cost? This is our approach. So this entire week, we want you to realize, when we talk about Hebrews 11 and 1, faith is the substance of things, the evidence of things. That is also the definition of a lie. <laughs> it's also the definition of fake news. Do you, do, do, you, do you remember the weapons of mass destruction? And, and, and what was said with the response to the fact that none were found? Right? That, that, that the absence of the evidence does not necessarily purport that the, the evidence is absent. Many people don't go to church because they realize metaethically that what you call faith is just you lying. Every single day, whether it's the woman who's walking by a construction site, whether it's the, the newly minted MDiv going up before the adjudicatories, whether it's you going up for a job interview, whether it's a cop pulling you over and you were speeding as you reach for your clerical collar. Every single day. We go through a crisis of faith. We, we, we try to figure out by what life, by what truth, by what posture can our good life be sustained? All of these questions, how do things work? What feels right? What are the costs, gains, and risks? How does power work? How should I act with others? How does this make me feel? What does the future hold? What must I do? What does this mean for me? Who do I trust? How did things get here? What variables exist? This is at the heart of our call, our existence, our embodiment, and how we know as a church mothers within my tradition would say, how we know that we know that we know that we know who we are and whose we are. This pathos, the passion, the ethos, the values, right? The logos, the reason, inform our theos. What is ultimately sacred? And what we don't say is not necessary because the truth we proclaim it's not only, as the song says, written all over our face. It's inscribed on our very bodies. 
And that's the first text. And sometimes the only sacred text that our congregants read. Dr. Wanda. Good morning and greetings to you all. Um, by both uh, training as well as uh, tenancy, I'm a historian, a religious historian, in fact. And what I mean by that is that unlike many of my colleagues, ethicists who are trying to figure out why people do what they do, theologians who are trying to ponder and sometimes pontificate on what is the mind of God and, and how does humanity fit into that, to preachers and proclaimers who, who are trying to say, thus saith the Lord, and, and trying to, you know, connect the people of God to their creator and the creator to those people. As a historian, my research and my, my efforts are trying to talk about what people actually did and probably shouldn't have done. <laughs> and in my research, I'm here to bring receipts. So on that note, on that note and in that measure, I want to talk about a song, a song that's probably uh, well known to each and every person in this room. I'm talking about Amazing Grace. Now, even though uh, um, one of the most cherished lyrics in that song is How Sweet the Sound, what I want to talk about here, as it brings together the kind of trifold concerns that uh, Dr. Stacey and I are, are here to uh, articulate, popular culture, political theology, and public witness. What we have here, coming from the, the story of one John Newton, born in the early 1700s, 1724 thereabouts, right? Even in his upbringing, right? In his early life, his father is a sea captain, his mother a church-going woman. Already you're, you're seeing a dividing line in, in his biography, right? The mother, a righteous woman, just trying to do the best she can. And to borrow the parlance of uh, the temptations, Papa was a rolling stone. And where he laid his hat was his home. You know, he's a rough and tumble man. Okay, so you've got this division even within his upbringing. Growing up young, white and poor in his native England, he's jumped by a gang and brought onto his first sailing vessel. Okay, so gang culture permeating uh, part of uh, um, the old world, as it were. Um, and it's made its way into the new world and, and found deep roots here. In that life on the seas, the only way he could survive and get by is by becoming part of this system, this, this maritime and uh, um, market-driven world of his. And the greatest part of that game was the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. And so if he was going to make it in the world and, and make any kind of claim to fame, any kind of success and notoriety out of his life, he had to become preeminently successful at the enslavement of other human beings, particularly those of African descent. Okay. It was the, you know, it wasn't Bitcoin, but it was the, the hottest thing going as far as, <laughs> personally, I'm of, of a mind that all currency is crypto, but we can have that conversation <laughs> at another time. But the idea that in his own struggle to survive, he had to compromise and terrorize hundreds, if not thousands of other human beings, right? This is a narrative that we need to take note of in our own day and time. What have we done? What do we continue to do to benefit ourselves at the bankruptcy of others? He eventually works his way up the, the social hierarchy of the slave ship from the lowly crew member to becoming a captain of the slave trade. And very typical in that era was this notion that after a couple of uh, um, transatlantic uh, voyages, you could actually secure the bag. You could actually stack enough money up that you could retire for the rest of your lives because the, even though they didn't have psychologists or, or counselors or therapists at the time, it was known that the wear and tear emotionally, mentally, physically of these voyages was immense. Now, if you're the captain and crew of the slave ship and you think that it's too strenuous and, and arduous uh, a voyage, how do you think it was for the enslaved? 
Okay, we can bracket that. But you know, their, their whole notion was the typical ploy of, of anyone who's doing dirty deeds for cheap. Oh, if I just put together enough money, I can get out of this. If, if I put aside enough cash, if I, if I get that one big score, that winning lottery ticket, I'm out. I don't have to do this anymore. So long story short, roughly around 1779 or thereabouts, as legend has it, one of the voyages that Newton and his crew have embarked on is hit by a terrible storm at sea. Ship is tossed all about, right? About to fall apart. In his captain's cabin, right? Instead of writing in his log, he's now writing a prayer to God. And many of the lyrics that we now know today of the song Amazing Grace are those words that, you know, he's putting pen to paper about. Meanwhile, below, deep in the belly of the ship, in a place where no, no tears have escaped and no, no cries could be heard, we had the moanings and groanings of those women, men, and children taken from Africa. They're wailing, they're weeping, because they already didn't understand why they were there. They already didn't understand or know God, how come we hear, as the quite literal uh, transliteration of kumbaya meant? Oftentimes we use kumbaya, you know, to invoke another uh, popular or well-known song. We oftentimes uh, ridicule and reduce any hope for bipartisanship in politics or, you know, racial or cultural reconciliation as, oh, well, okay, this is our kumbaya moment. But that was actually a plea by indigenous Africans who were enslaved to try and make sense of the world. They were already engaged in a project and process of theodicy, of why do bad things happen to good people, right? They were already grappling with this. Although, because you know, they didn't come to find institutions like Princeton or Vanderbilt or you know, some of the mother ones up and down the East Coast, <laughs> I won't name them. Uh, Right, you know, they didn't get fair, fair hearing or credence. They weren't given their, their full credibility or, or merit. But the power of a song and its strength to endure. Right? Even though disconnected, even though they're in the same ship, aboard the same vessel, the realities of Newton at the top of the ship and the enslaved black folk at the bottom of the ship they're connected, but they're not unified, all right? So as he's writing the lyrics of this much known and, and well-beloved song, right, to the moanings and groanings of the folks in the belly of the ship, right, once that ship did survive the storm, because God is still God, God is still good, once that ship survived, made it to shore, Newton comes out and he's like, I'm a changed man. I... I found the light. Now he didn't give up slave trading. He kept on uh, going on a few more voyages because, as I said before, he had to set up his uh, retirement package. But once, but once he did accrue enough money, once he did stack enough chips, he did finally leave slave trading behind. Even became a Methodist minister, a writer, an abolitionist. Now, this is where we move from the popular culture piece to the, the political theology piece. Abolition, right? the desire and intention to end the transatlantic slave trade. You know, think about it as the 18th and 19th century version of human trafficking, okay? Because that's what human trafficking is. Okay, but the idea that for Newton and the many folks, especially within the, the ranks of the Methodist church, who then took up the cause of trying to end enslavement in all its manifest forms. The idea that they still didn't fully encompass or appreciate human equality as part of that bargain. They stopped short, right? Yeah, they didn't want to enslave any more Africans, but they didn't also think that Africans and ultimately their new world descendants were fully freely human. Okay, so, even when you're doing the good work, you always, we always need to know that there's more work to be done. Okay. Last but certainly not least, in the 
public witness uh, frame. What to do with a song like Amazing Grace? I, for, for, for me and mine, I, you know, I renounce and reject the song. I, I refuse to sing it. I refuse to embrace it. Knowing its history, I can no longer hold it in as high esteem. And think about this. When I talk about the popularity of the song, right, even to the point where m many folks, especially if they've ever gone to or by the church, right, will invoke Amazing Grace as their favorite hymn, as their favorite song, right? In fact, presidents of the United States as different in their political and personal outlook as Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama, most famously, have, have grappled with or, or gravitated towards the song in many ways, right, for their own political and personal ends. But I grapple with, I wrestle with, right, can we separate the cultural product, the, the, the thing that is made from the person who has made it? Am I free and, and fit to enjoy the, the art or creativity of, of someone like a Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey or R. Kelly or Bill Cosby? Right. Knowing the, the kind of person and pursuits that they, they indulged in while creating these, these works. I, for one, can't. Plus, I think Blessed Assurance is a better song all around. But, okay, okay, but, you know, that's just me. That's just me. But what we also have to grapple with here, if you will, and I find this uh, most fitting from one uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right, in Pause of Discipleship, he offers up the statement, and I'm quoting here. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living and incarnate. If you want the goods, but don't care about the cost, once again, to emphasize what we've been talking about, My question, our question, not just today, but uh, throughout much of the week. What are you, what are any of us willing to sacrifice to be who we claim to be in the name of Christ Jesus, right? We all live in a world of comfort and convenience. We all live in this world thinking that, oh, well, nobody will know or, or it won't go uh, um, against our our credibility if I just hold my tongue, if I just, you know, keep it moving, so to speak. But what I really want to suggest, and I, I invoke uh, the late, great Gayward Wilmore in his classic, uh, Black Religion and Black Radicalism. He makes this statement about what we would nowadays refer to as racial diversity or, or um, pluralism and quote unquote inclusion. And he makes a statement, and I quote, from 1750 to 1861, so from the years predating the American Revolution to the years just at the, at the breaking point of the U.S. Civil War, there were more black and white Christians worshiping in the same congregations proportionate to their numbers as baptized Christians than there are today. This should not, however, be taken to imply that prior to the Civil War, American churches were racially integrated. Blacks enjoyed no real freedom or equality of ecclesiastical status in either the North or in the South. It never occurred to white Christians that the equality that was denied to their brothers and sisters in civil society should at least be made available to them within the church. There was interracial worship before the Civil War, but it was never intended to suggest equality. If the church is the house of God, rather than the orphanage of God, let's, let's put it that way, right? Not just the place where you show up because you have nowhere else to go, but the place that you are because you belong and you are blessed to be there, right? How do you wrestle? How do any of us, all of us, right? Because one thing, uh, you know, uh, by osmosis, I pick up on with this uh, meta-ethical uh, approach is we can't just constantly point the fingers one direction, but we're also 
calling ourselves into question and accountability in what we do and how we do it. What have we done to make it possible that more people can share in all the benefits and blessings of, of God's community, of God's beloved community to invoke Dr. King once again? So as a final note, uh, before we open up for questions, I want to offer up uh, a statement taken from the pages of uh, W.B. Du Bois's uh, classic work, which we'll discuss more on, uh, on tomorrow, Souls of Black Folks. In that volume, Du Bois offers up this statement. This then is the end of our striving, to be a co-worker in the kingdom of culture, to escape both death and isolation, to husband and use his, her best uh, talents, powers, and latent genius. These powers of body and mind have in the past been strangely wasted, dispersed, or forgotten. The shadow of a mighty Negro past flits through the tale of Ethiopia, the shadowy, and of Egypt, the Sphinx. Throughout history, the powers of single black men, women, and children flash here and there like falling stars and die sometimes before the world has rightly gauged their brightness. Here in America, in the few days since emancipation, the black people's turning hither and thither in hesitant and doubtful striving has often made his or her strength to lose effectiveness, to seem like absence of power, like weakness. And yet, it is not weakness, it is the contradiction of double aims. The double aim struggle of the black artisan, on the one hand to escape white contempt for a nation of mere hewers of wood and drawers of water, and on the other to plow and nail and dig for a poverty-stricken horde, could only result in making him or her a poor craftsman, for she or he had but half a heart in either cause. So much of the sense of, of spinning our wheels, so much of the sense many of you all, many of us, encounter in the church today wondering, okay, what is this all for? What am I doing? The, the levels of retirements, resignations, resentment that many folks, especially in, in the ordained and, and uh, anointed and appointed clergy have towards their calling, right? Not just your coming to the pulpit or coming to the ministry, but if you do truly know and acknowledge that you were called to this thing, you know, as, as the old folks, and I, I nearly and dearly uh, miss the um, presence and existence of uh, Albert Rabiteau, um, who's y'all's good neighbor down uh, just across the street here, um, talking about a fire shot up in my bones, right? If this is a thing that you could not resist doing, then no matter how, how you try to fight it, it just wouldn't let you go. If that is truly what we're called to do, right? How can we be co-workers, right? No, I'm not trying to be better than anybody. I just want to be considered equal to everybody. How can we achieve that, that great goal, all right? benediction before we open up with questions we want to ask that um, you would tend to and I, I understand that when we're talking about the work that we're doing it is it is very difficult to to want to enter that fray mm -hmm. of talking about politics of talking about popular culture. We, we want to protect the pulpit from those things. But that's what people, that's where we meet the world in salvation. Who do we want to save? Do we want to save minds, I mean souls, and lose minds and bodies in the process? Right? This is the zombie culture that our youth mm -hmm. are so enticed by mm -hmm. because they feel like the walking dead. Mm -hmm. And so how does our, our work, our worth, and our witness yeah. meet people where they are? Is there a word from the Lord? 
And does it reside yeah. in us? So we'll ask Connie, Beth, and Lillian to give us scripture to help frame how we understand popular culture, political theology, and public witness so we might tell the gospel truth. Micah 6, 8. God has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Reading from the third gospel, chapter four, verses 18 through 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are, who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To be the carrier of the gospel. <laughs> is to bring good news to a bad situation. It is to know what the Lord requires of you. It is a way to understand how do you synthesize what all the laws and the prophets command about how you love. And it's to wonder as you proclaim, is the anointing on you? Not for years gone by, not for the world as it should be, but is the anointing on you to proclaim that good news and to make this time in which we all find ourselves calling us to proclaim it as the year of the Lord's favor. Blessings. 